Hello, hello. Welcome to TCC Podcast, The True Crime Chronicles. I am Lindsay. While you're here, be sure to give me a follow so you don't miss any episodes. Share, comment, give a rating, all that fun stuff. I'm just starting out, so that would help me a ton, and I would greatly appreciate it. So today's episode is episode two of History's Mysteries series, and we are going to discuss the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders. So yesterday, today, and tomorrow, tomorrow being October 1st, marks 41 years since Chicago was hit with tainted bottles of Tylenol that killed seven people, three from one family alone. Now these deaths spawned copycat killings, And I'm looking at you, Washington, and absolute hysteria over using something that almost everyone had in their medicine cabinets at the time. But more importantly, it set off a chain of events that led to safer and tamper resistant bottles and packaging to prevent this type of thing from happening again. So sit back, kind of dig in. We're about to talk about the Tylenol murders of 1982. Now, as of June 2023, more than 60 million Americans consume acetaminophen or Tylenol on a weekly basis. Personally, I'm an ibuprofen girl, but a lot of people rely on Tylenol as their go-to for you know, fevers, headaches, or just general aches and pains. Tylenol was first prepared by H. N. Morse in 1878, but it wasn't until the 1950s that it was marketed for widespread use under the original name of triagesic. In 1955, McNeil Labs changed the brand name to Tylenol, And the term acetaminophen was sort of coined from the chemical name of the drug. In 1959, Johnson & Johnson bought McNeil Laboratories. And one year later, acetaminophen was made available over the counter. So everyone, you know, made it very available to purchase. So by the time September of 1982 comes around, Tylenol is a very well-known, very trusted medication. But in and around Chicago, September 29th through about October 1st of 1982, it became something lethal that killed seven people, three in one family. Now enter in extra strength Tylenol capsules. The capsules at this time They were not like the kind that we have now. So the capsules in 82, they came apart and they had the medicine inside that you could like dump out and mix with ice cream or something if you were a big baby and couldn't swallow pills. I'm looking at myself on that one. Still can't swallow pills. But unfortunately, that design left the capsules very vulnerable to tampering. Mary Kellerman was a seventh grader at Adams Junior High School in Schaumburg, and she had a love of horses and horseback riding. She lived with both of her parents, Dennis and Gina Kellerman, 
in Chicago's Northwest suburbs. And she would babysit in her neighborhood after school to try and earn extra money. Now, the early morning of September 29th, 1982, 12-year-old Mary, she woke up with a sore throat and a runny nose. So she tells her parents about her symptoms and they give her an extra strength Tylenol and then kind of send her back to start getting ready for school. At 7 a.m., her parents find Mary unconscious on the bathroom floor. Her parents rush her to the hospital Now, I don't know if they called an ambulance or if they drove her themselves. I couldn't really find that information. But they get her to the hospital and they get her there as fast as they can. And unfortunately, she is pronounced dead by 9.30 a.m. Now, at first, Mary's death was assumed to be a stroke, which is very odd to me that That was the conclusion that they jumped to first. But after talk screens were done and the reports came back, it very quickly becomes clear that it was not a stroke that killed Mary Kellerman. In fact, it wasn't natural causes at all. Mary Kellerman had been murdered. Now, later that same day in Arlington Heights, 27-year-old postal worker and father of two, Adam Janis. He stayed home from work that day. He thought he was coming down with a cold and thought it best not to expose other people just in case it was something contagious. So Adam picks up his two young children from preschool, but decided to make a stop at a Jewel grocery store and purchase a bottle of extra strength Tylenol. His his symptoms, excuse me, had not improved throughout the day, so he thought some Tylenol would help. Adam and his two children get home. He takes several capsules of the newly purchased extra strength Tylenol, walks into his bedroom where he collapses and falls into a coma. He dies, you know, very shortly later in the emergency room at Northwest Community Hospital. After Adam's death, his family is just baffled. Like, they don't know what happened. They are so confused. And initially, they thought that his death was a massive heart attack. So his family gathers at his home to mourn and begin to plan his funeral. Adam's brother, 25-year-old Stanley, and his wife, so Adam's sister-in-law, 19-year-old Teresa, they lived in Lyle, Illinois. They were among the family members that had gathered at Adam's house. Now, both Stanley and Teresa were experiencing throbbing headaches, which is a common reaction, right, to what they had been dealing with. Crying, stress, you know, probably not a lot of sleep, probably not eating correctly. So they begin to look around the house just to see if Adam had any Tylenol or other headache type medications. Now, in Adam's bathroom cabinet, they find a bottle of extra strength Tylenol. 
Now, this is the same bottle that Adam had taken his Tylenol from just a few days prior. But of course, I mean, his family has no, no knowledge of this. Now, moments after taking the Tylenol, Stanley and Teresa collapsed and they are rushed to the hospital. But now the Janice family is really confused. They, they don't know what is going on. And now they're concerned because they're thinking that this might be a carbon monoxide situation. So the remaining members of the Janice family are taken to the hospital for observation. But there are no other deaths. So they send them home. They don't know what, what happened, right? So a joint funeral was held for the three Janice family members on October 5th of 1982. Now, also on September 29th, 1982, 27-year-old Mary Magdalene Reiner, she grew up in Villa Park and was 100% Irish. Now, I could have told you that by just seeing her name. My grandfather came over from Ireland and I was raised in a very Irish Catholic family on my father's side. And seeing that name, 100%, I could have guessed she was Irish. Mary was a good cook, and apparently, like, her go-to thing to make for her family was corned beef and egg noodles. She loved to play softball. She loved to play the drums. And she loved to bowl. Now, Mary Reiner had just given birth to her fourth child. She was very happily married to her husband, Ed, and they were enjoying being new parents for the fourth time. And as awesome as becoming a new parent can be, post-birth discomfort is a real thing. So Mary did what millions of people do when in discomfort, and she reaches for the extra strength Tylenol. And what happens next seems to follow the same pattern as the others. Mary very quickly collapses. And unfortunately, Mary's daughter, Michelle Rosen, who was just eight years old when her mother died, witnessed the entire thing. I can't even imagine what that would be like for an eight-year-old. I was 19 when my mother died. I wasn't there to witness it. But it, it took me years to, to try and sort that, right? And process it. I can't imagine at eight years old trying to do that. That's heartbreaking. Now, Mary's husband, Ed, made it home very shortly after Mary collapses. He said he came home right after she had fallen on the floor. An ambulance is called and they come and rush her to Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield. Mary's death left Ed a widow and four children without a mother, including her newborn son. Now, I can't imagine how Ed was feeling at that time. You know, he left the house. He was happily married, four kids, a brand new son, had just this great family life, and things were good, right? The second he comes home, 
he's now a widower and a single parent who's responsible for raising four children. One of them, just a brand new baby without, you know, his partner and their mother. I just, I can't imagine trying to process that at that time. It's, it's heartbreaking. So the next day, September 30th, 1982, 30-year-old Mary McFarlane is working at her job at the Illinois Bell in Lombard when she felt a bad headache starting to form. Mary was born to parents John and Jane Eliason, and she had a brother, Jack Eliason. Mary was a single parent and working to raise two young sons at the time of her death, Ryan and Bradley McFarlane. Now, according to her brother, Jack, Mary went to the back room of her workplace. I'm guessing like a break room of sorts, maybe. And within minutes, Mary was on the floor. She had taken extra strength Tylenol right before she collapsed on the floor of the break room. Now, Jack didn't know how many Tylenol she had taken, but he knew it was at least one. Now, Mary had a granddaughter that was born after her death that holds her name in honor of the grandmother that she never got to meet. October 1st, 1982, 35-year-old flight attendant for United Airlines, Paula Prince, had just flew from Las Vegas to O'Hare International Airport. On her way home, she stops by a Walgreens and picks up some Tylenol. An ATM surveillance camera captures her purchasing the Tylenol. Now, this might be important a little bit later on, and we will come back to it. Paula, she was very tired from a long flight and had been battling symptoms of a cold. So she takes an extra strength Tylenol as she was getting ready for bed. Paula was found dead in her apartment and an open bottle of Tylenol was found lying next to her. So what happened, right? Like what could have happened that caused seven young and otherwise healthy people to just drop dead out of nowhere? Or in all seven cases, after they took extra strength Tylenol. At first, though, the deaths were attributed to a natural death, or they even thought maybe the carbon monoxide poisoning theory. So enter in nurse Helen Jensen. She was Arlington Heights' only public health official. Now, I tried to Google what exactly being a public health official entailed and why Nurse Helen was the only one, but I couldn't really find much. So if anybody knows, please feel free to, you know, educate me a little bit because I couldn't find anything. Nurse Helen goes to the Janice household to just kind of peek around and she sees the extra strength Tylenol bottle and a receipt showing the purchase being the same day as Adam Janice's death. So upon counting the pills, Nurse Helen finds six of the pills to be missing, which would make sense. 
three adults with two extra strength Tylenols apiece. So Nurse Helen decides to take the bottle and turns it over to investigator Nick Pichos. It might be Pichos. I'm not exactly for sure how to say it. And she relayed her suspicion to law enforcement that the Tylenol was somehow involved. So investigator Nick called the deputy chief medical examiner for Cook County, Dr. Edmund Donahue. Now, Dr. Donahue had a suspicion of the cause and asks investigator Nick to smell the bottles and then just tell him what it smelled like. If anything, right? What did you notice? When investigator Nick said he smelled an almond-like scent, Dr. Donahue knew that his hunch was correct. So as soon as Dr. Donahue hears that, he calls in the county's chief toxicologist, Michael Schaefer, to test the capsules. Which... Schaefer and his team did. And that, you know, confirmed Dr. Donahue's theory that the remaining 44 capsules in the Tylenol bottle collected from the Janus house were full of cyanide and not just a small amount. Each capsule contained nearly three times the fatal amount of cyanide in them. Luckily, the first responders at Mary Kellerman's death and Mary McFarland's death had thought ahead to collect their Tylenol bottles from their house as well. Now, at first, the theory was that the tampering of the capsules were done at factory level, but the bottles came out of two different factories, Pennsylvania and Texas. So that kind of knocked that theory down. The bottle from the Janice house and the bottle from the Kellerman death came from the same lot, which was lot MC2880. So a recall was done by Johnson & Johnson for that lot of Tylenol. But tainted bottles showed up from other lots. Mary McFarland's bottle was traced to lots 1910MD, and MB2738. In total, six bottles were found to have the lethal pills in them. Two bottles were found in Jewel Foods locations, one in Arlington Heights, and then one in Elk Grove Village. One bottle at an Osco drugstore in Schaumburg, one at a Walgreens, and one at a Dominic's. Both of those were in Chicago. And then there was one bottle at a Frank's Finer Foods in Winfield. Now, one bottle was purchased by Linda Morgan, and she was the wife of Judge, Judge Lewis Morgan. And luckily for Linda, she was part of the 60% of people that can smell the almondy scent that cyanide can let off. And didn't use the Tylenol because of the odd scent. It just didn't smell right to her. So she opted not to take it. And very lucky for her. 
So what is cyanide? Cyanide, by definition, is a rapidly acting substance that is traditionally known as a poison. Cyanide does have use in certain areas, like a legitimate use, right? Electroplating, photography, plastic and rubber manufacturing, some pesticides and jewelry cleaners, and I'm sure there's some others, but those are kind of like the main, you know, things. And then some natural substances, you know, in some foods like lima beans and almonds, they can also release cyanide, but I mean, not enough to cause harm or reaction, you know, in anyone. Now, a patient, depending on what their route of administration was, can present symptoms within one minute through inhalation, typically, and within a few minutes through ingestion, typically. Now, if the cyanide is inhaled, the person might detect that bitter almond smell that kind of tipped off Dr. Donahue, right, and prevented the judge's wife from taking the Tylenol. But only about 60% of the population have the ability to detect the almond-like smell of cyanide. So, you know, cyanide is a very lethal chemical. It can cause all kinds of medical issues, but most commonly it causes death especially if it is orally ingested. So as you can imagine, once the news of the seven deaths and the cyanide-laced Tylenol broke, sheer panic, right, just broke out across the Chicago metro area and eventually throughout the nation. So all stores removed Tylenol from their shelves. Police went through the streets using loudspeakers to warn people against using Tylenol. It caused a panic at the hospitals as well. Crowds of people were turning up at the local hospitals, attributing unrelated illnesses or symptoms to cyanide poisoning. So there was just a lot of fear and a lot of paranoia, and honestly, rightfully so. Poison control lines were flooded with calls from concerned residents. People who relied on Tylenol for their pain management went without it. Everyone, you know, at this point was afraid for their safety. This had never happened before. But Johnson & Johnson wasted no time sending out the warnings and halting production and advertising. They sent out warnings to hospitals and distributors, eventually issuing a nationwide recall of Tylenol on October 5th, 1982. At that time, an estimated 31 million bottles were in circulation. Now, that was a retail value of over $100 million. Now, that would equate to $303 million in 2022. An 800 number was set up to handle calls from panicked residents, and there was also a separate line for media. 
in addition to the hospitals, stores, and the information lines, Johnson & Johnson did a national media burst, telling individuals not to consume any of its products that contained acetaminophen. And the test, you know, showed that it was only the capsules that had been compromised. So what happened with that was Johnson & Johnson, they offered to exchange all Tylenol capsules that had already been individually purchased, you know, prior to the poisoning, and they would trade them out for these solid tablets. Customs, you know, departments at the airports outside of the U.S., they were asking visitors if they had brought Tylenol with them. So they wanted to make sure that everyone knew about the dangers and this recall that was going on. So the next question became how these bottles became tainted. And that question was quickly followed by who is responsible? Who would have done this? Well, the police hypothesis was that someone had taken the bottles off the store shelves. They had placed the potassium cyanide in the capsules and then put the packages back on the store shelves in the Chicago area where unsuspecting customers purchased them. Now, I definitely subscribe to this theory, except I think this person maybe purchased the bottles ahead of time and they did their handiwork at home where they could take their time doing it and then discreetly put them back on the store shelves. Now, a couple different tactics were used to try and kind of smoke out the murderer. Early in 1983, at the request of the FBI and with the Kellerman's permission, a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, Bob Green, published their home address and also the grave location of Mary Kellerman, the first and youngest victim of the tainted Tylenol. Now, this idea was proposed by FBI criminal analyst John Douglas on the theory that the person responsible might visit the house, you know, or the grave site if he were made aware of their locations. Because they do say that, you know, killers oftentimes return to the scene of their crimes. Now, for several months, both of these locations were kept under 24-hour video surveillance. But the killer never made an appearance. Now, okay. I, I am trying to sort of understand this. I get the general theory and like what they were trying to do. And even releasing the grave location, okay, I, I would understand that. But I don't understand why they would release the Kellerman's home address and why they would agree to that. Because not only are you releasing the address where the potential killer can come to your home, but it's also out there for any other crazy person to come to your home. 
And there's not going to be 24-hour surveillance forever. So I found that to just be a very odd play that they made. But I, I don't know. I mean, it just, I wouldn't be comfortable with that. Not at all. Now, a surveillance photo of victim Paula Prince purchasing the cyanide-laced Tylenol at a Walgreens at 1601 North Wells Street. Now, remember we talked about that just a little bit earlier in the episode where that might become important. So, that was a Chicago Walgreens and the picture was released by the Chicago Police Department. Now, police believe that the bearded man seen just a few feet behind Paula, he could potentially be the killer. Now, I have no idea why they thought this, though, other than just space and time around victim Paula. Um, If they had any other information on the bearded man, they didn't release it. So, you know, I'm not sure if it was just because he happened to show up in the picture they thought maybe he was involved. Now, one suspect, James Williams Lewis. He wrote an extortion letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding for them to send him $1 million. And once he received said million dollars, the cyanide-laced bottles would stop showing up. So the police thought, gotcha, right? Like, this person has to be the killer. But Lewis lived in New York at the time with his wife and is said to have no ties to Chicago. But I did read in several articles that Lewis and Mrs. Lewis actually had lived in the Chicago area very early in the 1980s. Now, 82 to me is still very early in the 80s. So I would guess, you know, maybe in the early part of 1980, they had some sort of living situation in Chicago, but I I don't know. But in addition to the letter, Lewis was found to have possessed a book on poisons. And according to an anonymous law enforcement document, his fingerprints were found on the pages that related to cyanide. Now, while Lewis did admit to writing the letter, he denied actually doing the poisonings. Now, his reasoning for writing the letter, according to Lewis, it was only intended to focus authorities' attentions on his wife's former employer who I am assuming is Johnson & Johnson. And Lewis said that he worked on the extortion letter for three days. Lewis was convicted of extortion, and he was sentenced to 20 years. He served 13 of them before he was paroled. In 2007, authorities determined that Lewis's letter was postmarked October 1st, 1982. So, if Lewis's timeline was correct, he began working on the letter before the poisonings were reported 
or before they even happened. So when confronted with this information, Lewis recanted his statement about the timeline, you know, or the three days. Now, 2009, court documents were released from the Department of Justice that concluded that Lewis was the responsible party. However, they just didn't have enough evidence to make their case to charge him. So in January of 2010, both Lewis and his wife submitted DNA samples and fingerprints to authorities. On May 19th, 2011, the FBI requested DNA samples from Ted Kaczynski or the Unabomber. And they did this to see if he had any connection to the Tylenol tampering. And he, of course, denied ever having possessed potassium cyanide. But the Unabomber's first four crimes, they happened in Chicago and its suburbs from 1978 to 1980. And in 1982, Kaczynski's parents lived in Lombard, Illinois, where he would occasionally stay with them. Now, while the Tylenol scare in Chicago was awful and it killed seven people, hundreds of copycat attacks began involving Tylenol, but they also involved other over-the-counter medications and just other products in general around the United States. And this happened immediately following the Chicago deaths. And unfortunately, when a crime gets a lot of, um, you know, attention or like media coverage, you're always going to have the copycat people come out. And this is awful. Because what happened from the copycats is that three more people died from contaminated medication. 23-year-old Diane Ellsroth died in Yonkers, New York, after ingesting extra-strength Tylenol that were laced with cyanide. Now, I don't know how police knew that this was not part of the original bottles that were tampered with, um, or if she bought it after... The recall, I couldn't really find any information about it, but I'm thinking it very possibly could be a seventh bottle that was previously contaminated as part of the original crime. I don't know that, of course. Obviously, I would have no way of knowing that, but I feel like there's a very good likelihood or possibility that that was part of the original uh, tampering and not a copycat. Now, Excedrin capsules in Washington state were tampered with, and this resulted in the death of Susan Snow and Bruce Nickel. And this was from cyanide poisoning. However, this incident did result in an arrest of Mrs. Bruce Nickel. Stella Nickel, Bruce's wife was arrested and convicted for her intentional acts, you know, connecting her to both murders. So 
to me, this sounds just like a, a love triangle gone bad, right? Maybe like a cheating husband. I don't know exactly what the relationship of Susan was to Bruce. You know, that I couldn't find, but it was something. Whether it was the secretary, her best friend, they were sneaking behind her back. Something pissed off Mrs. Nickel. So, and it didn't end well, not for anybody. Now, that same year, 1986, Proctor and Gamble recalled one of their pain relievers in Capron after a spiking hoax in Chicago and Detroit resulted in a big sales drop and a big withdrawal of their pain relievers from the market. Now, things kind of settled down a little bit until 1991. We head back to Washington State. Kathleen Daniker and Stanley McWhorter were killed by taking cyanide-laced Sudafed. And the Sudafed came from two different boxes. A third person, Jennifer Mailing, she went into a coma from a similar poisoning, but she fortunately was able to recover very shortly after. And just as in the last Washington case, a spouse was responsible. Jennifer's husband, Joseph Mailing, was convicted on numerous federal charges in a Seattle court regarding the deaths of both Kathleen and Stanley and the attempted murder of his wife, Jennifer, who had been abused by Joseph throughout their marriage. Now, Joseph was sentenced to life in prison, and he just recently lost an appeal for a new trial. I'm going to tell you what, though. Good Lord. The 80s were a bad time to piss off your spouse in Washington. So, holy cow. And I guess the early 90s, too. Now, there is one case that was documented in 1986 that I am going to include, but with an asterisk next to it. So in 1986, at the University of Texas, student Kenneth Fares was found dead in his apartment as a result of cyanide poisoning. There were laced capsules Uh, determined to be the source of the cyanide that was found in his body. Now, May 30th, 1986, Kenneth's death was ruled a homicide, but after some investigating, his death was changed to a suicide on June 19th of 1986. And this was done by the Travis County Medical Examiner because they discovered that he had obtained the cyanide himself from a lab where he worked so it looked like a suicide in all probability I mean most likely it was but they didn't have a note or anything definitive so that's why it's kind of an asterisk case you know now the Tylenol murders unfortunately became a cold case very quickly but no matter how much time went by they still kept coming back to the same person, and that was James Lewis. Now, James Lewis was no stranger to breaking the law. In 1978, Lewis was charged in Kansas City, Missouri with the murder and dismemberment 
of Raymond West, age 72. Raymond had hired James Lewis as an accountant. Unfortunately, though, the charges in that case were dismissed because Mr. West's cause of death could not be determined and some of the evidence had been illegally obtained. In 1981, this was also in Kansas City, James was convicted of six counts of mail fraud. He was running a credit card scheme of sorts and he was using the name and background of a former tax client to obtain 13 credit cards. Holy cow. Now, I don't know how long he served in prison or if he even served prison time at all. I couldn't really find out what the end result of that case was. In 2004, James Lewis was charged with rape, kidnapping, and other offenses for an alleged attack on a woman in Cambridge, Massachusetts. James stayed in jail for three years while he awaited his trial. But the day his trial was scheduled to start, the victim refused to testify. And because of this, the Middlesex County District Attorney's Office, they had no choice but to dismiss James' charges and release him from jail, free to go. I'm going to tell you what, though. This man had some crazy luck on his side when it came to his legal situation. You know, but maybe had the 1978 charges, you know, been able to be pursued, I feel like there's a good possibility that the Tylenol murders possibly could have never happened. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Maybe if he is the one that did it, even had he served his sentence, maybe he would have done it when he got out or maybe he wouldn't have gotten out. You know, it's just, it's a what if game on that one, you know? Now in 1983, police described James as a chameleon. You know, someone who lived in several states, used at least 20 aliases, and he held many different types of occupations throughout the years. Now, James was a computer specialist, a tax accountant, an importer of Indian tapestries, a jewelry salesman, a pharmaceutical salesman, um, a machinery tech, and, you know, a real estate agent. So, James seems to have just a lot of interests, right? And just multiple employment backgrounds. I feel like he is the epitome of not putting all your eggs in the same basket, right? Now, even though James Lewis was never charged in the Tylenol murders, it was definitely not for a lack of trying on the part of the police. Now, law enforcement officials met with or had phone conversations with James a minimum of 34 times, starting around 2007 through about 2009, and that was when the case was reopened. So officials met with James at several different hotels and restaurants in the Boston and Cambridge areas where he was living around that time. 
Now, all of the meetings were consensually recorded, and every meeting was attended by retired special FBI agent Roy Lane and an undercover agent. So, of course, I don't have the identity for that one, but the video recording of one meeting at a hotel on February 6th of 2008, it was obtained through a Freedom of Information request, right? So an FOIA request. And it showed James speculating to Agent Roy Lane that he believed someone as young as a teenager, potentially a 15-year-old, and he gave that specific age. So I did find that to be a little strange. But he says a 15-year-old could have concocted a plan that left no traces of DNA on the bottles or cyanide-laced pills when they were placed on store shelves. Lewis would go on to show a pattern of researching, theorizing, and demonstrating to investigators how he thought the killer could have gotten away with the crime. And this wasn't just one meeting. I mean, this continued every time James met with investigators. So, in this FOIA requested video, Lewis says he, now he's referencing the person that he feels is responsible, could have bought a bottle a month before and kind of played with it until he got it right. Now, I want to do a quick note here. Whenever James would theorize about the murderer, he would always use the pronoun he, not they, or the person. It was always he, which might not mean anything at all. It's just an observation. And it could be because he's a male that it just felt more natural to refer to someone as a he. But I just found that to be very interesting. So James goes on to say that it sounded like a premix was used, then opened the bottle, put the tainted capsules in, put the bottle back, and then go on to the next store. Now, James said doing it this way would cut down on the standing time at the shelf by quite a bit of time. So it would, you know, prevent a lot of attention being called on them for just sort of loitering around a shelf, right? So Agent Roy asks James to help him create a mental picture about the scenario that he had just described. So, James had no problem with that. He described a person having capsules of some form, either being pulled out of the person's pocket or taken out of an envelope and then putting the capsules in a bottle. Now, in the video, Agent Roy asked James if he really felt that a 15-year-old could pull off a a plan involving cyanide, like how would a 15-year-old even know about cyanide, let alone, you know, how to obtain it or being able to obtain it? So, eh, you know, there's that. And B, you know, would a 15-year-old be sneaky and calm enough to be able to carry this out? 
and avoid being seen while they are in the store or, you know, stores. Now, in this video, Agent Roy references gloves, to which James responded, well, how do you know the person wasn't wearing gloves? Just because nobody saw or reported seeing someone with gloves. And Agent Roy confirmed that, responding with, well, yeah, I mean, that's accurate. So James says that surgical gloves, you know, sandwich bag gloves, those are all made out of the same stuff as just regular plastic gloves. Now, Agent Roy is asking him, you can't really use your fingers for all that, though, right? I mean, and it's at this point in the video that James begins to demonstrate. James shows the agent how he would have used a sandwich bag to put the pills in his pocket and dump the pills into the bottle with the baggie over his hand. Then put the bottle cap back on, you know, and, and kind of putting it down on a shelf. And so he asks Agent Roy, you know, how much sophistication do you really need? I guess that was suggesting that, yes, even a 15-year-old could do this. So James also suggested that the killer could have used a paper clip, right, to lift both the lid on the Tylenol box as well as the cotton to avoid leaving prints and DNA. So explaining that the paper clip goes underneath it, it lifts the lid up and it hooks over the end and he just kind of walks Agent Roy through the process, telling him that he thinks this could be done in a store in under a minute. Now, I'm trying to kind of visually understand what he's talking about. Now, during my lifetime, there was always the tamper-resistant bottles. So I don't know how easily... The pre, you know, 1982 Tylenol caps came off exactly. So I'm trying to just picture this being done with a paper clip. I don't know. But he demonstrated it and apparently felt like it was easy enough. A 15-year-old could do it in public in under a minute. So I guess I am... Just the problem in that scenario because I can't picture that at all. Now, in another recorded video, this one is undated. It shows James talking at length about the timeline of two infamous letters that he sent. The one that we've talked about that demanded the million dollars from Johnson & Johnson. And once he received the million dollars, he would stop the Tylenol killings. So, you know, that was a letter earlier in the episode, but there was a second letter, one that we haven't touched on yet. And the second letter was sent to the White House, specifically to President at the time, Ronald Reagan. And in it was a threat from James that he was going to attack the White House if President Reagan didn't change his tax policies. Now, spoiler alert, President Reagan didn't change his tax policies, so it didn't work. 
Now, James said he very vividly remembers writing the letters, but was unclear on the timelines, you know, this time around. He says he could have sworn that it took three days to write these letters. But according to the postage or the mailing date, he would have written the letter to Johnson & Johnson prior to the deaths happening and prior to them being reported. Now, in that same meeting, Lewis also said that he tried to avoid leaving evidence behind when he mailed the letters because he knew that that could be traced. You know, he said that he was worried about being photographed by security cameras. And instead, he chose to drop the letters at a post office quite a ways away from where he lived. He did not want them to know precisely what part of town that he was living in. You know, he said that there might be a post office box right outside my apartment, you know, or like a, just a big mailbox. And he knew not to use that one. Now, records were obtained by CBS2 that showed Lewis gave investigators several items as part of these conversations, including a folder containing articles that were related to the Tylenol murders, as well as an original artwork titled Tylenol Suspect for Life. I'm not kidding. So apparently there was some sort of enjoyment that James took in holding this suspect title or maybe in, you know, evading law enforcement and they just couldn't catch him. So it seemed like he he enjoyed that. Now, the meetings were not the first time that Lewis speculated about how the killings took place. He did an interview with CBS2 and former assistant U.S. attorney Jeremy Margulies, he's the one who prosecuted Lewis for the extortion. And he said that he first offered his assistance to the FBI after he was convicted for writing the letter to Johnson & Johnson. Now, Margulies said he did a lot of drawings, actually, not just the one that he gave investigators, the Tylenol for life, you know, or suspect for life. He didn't just do that one. He had a lot. And he had a lot of pen and ink drawings. And in the drawings, it kind of showed or acted out how the killer might have filled these capsules with the cyanide that ended up killing the seven people. Now, there was an illustration that Lewis made and he called it the drilled board method. And the process involved drilling holes into a plywood contraption and placing the bottom of the capsules into the holes. After placing cyanide on top of the board, Lewis said the poison could then just be scraped across with a bread knife before then putting the tops of the capsules back on and placing them into the Tylenol bottles. Now, last September, so a year ago, investigators re-interviewed Lewis again, and this was 40 years after the murders took place. 
but nothing in that interview was publicly released. So we know no information about that interview. So outside of a handful of other persons of interest, Lewis always remained a prime suspect from the very beginning. He was convicted of attempted extortion for sending the letter to Johnson & Johnson, who make the Tylenol, saying he would stop the killings if a million dollars was wired to a specific bank account. But police could just never place Lewis in Chicago shortly before the murders, and he repeatedly denied that he was the killer. But maybe he didn't, he wasn't in Chicago right before the murders. Maybe, you know, a month or two months before. And he had gotten the bottles then, put them on the shelf, and just like slipped out, right? Because he didn't live there. Nobody would have known him. Nobody would have recognized him or saw him. So maybe he didn't do it you know, shortly or right before the murders took place. But it's possible, you know, that whoever did it, I mean, did do it right before because a lot of those bottles were newly purchased, you know, the day that the people had died or very shortly around that time. So it's, I don't know, it's hard to tell. Now, unfortunately, that interview last year was the last interview with James that law enforcement is able to have because James Lewis died of a pulmonary embolism in July of this year. And he died in his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And officers, firefighters, and EMTs, they responded to a report of an unresponsive person around 4 p.m. on a Sunday. Now, James... Lewis was never charged in the seven deaths resulting from cyanide poisoning. It it sucked, but investigators just could not make a case against him. Now, Monica Janis, who was eight years old when three members of her family died after taking the tainted Tylenol capsules, she feels like the investigation was done very sloppily. She says the hurt of losing her family members never goes away. And the smiles, the joking around, like all of that, she just misses it. She lost both of her uncles and her aunt. Now, Monica and her father, they had mixed feelings about James Lewis's death. Most people, including the investigators, believe that James was responsible for lacing the Tylenol with the cyanide, but without a confession or conviction, they just never felt any closure. Monica says when she sees a Tylenol bottle, it just takes her back to the most tragic time in her family's life. Now, Kasia Novak Janice also lost three members of her family to the tainted Tylenol. Now, Keja was just four years old when her father, aunt, and uncle died from the cyanide-laced Tylenol capsules. Keja said that that day in September, the 29th, was just a normal day. Her dad, Adam Janice, picked her up from preschool 
And they went to a Jewel Osco store to pick up a couple things for her mother. And while they were there, they picked up the tainted Tylenol. Her father hadn't felt well that day. His symptoms, you know, hadn't gone away at all. So he grabbed the Tylenol while they were there. And she said that she remembers him picking up the box and putting it in the shopping basket. And that was the last time that Keja was ever with her father. Now, several hours after they returned home, she hears her mother screaming for her father to wake up. Now, Adam, her father, had unknowingly taken the cyanide-laced Tylenol. Now, Keja said all she remembers was the screaming and her mom trying to wake up her dad. And she runs to her dad and whispers in his ear, Tata, it's me. You can wake up now. Now, how fucking heartbreaking, right? And just, just my God, like traumatic for a four-year-old. I can't even process. Now, after her father's death, the Janice family gathered at their Arlington Heights home to mourn and plan the funeral of their family member. And, you know, everyone was just very confused, right? As to what caused a healthy 27-year-old to just drop dead. Now, part of the family that had come over was her Aunt Teresa and Uncle Stanley. Now, Keja remembers her aunt and uncle asking her how she was doing and then asking her what happened. And she just remembers telling them, I don't know. I don't know. And at four years old, like, of course she doesn't know. She was probably the most confused out of everybody there. Now, Keja says they were really upset and overwhelmed with grief and they needed something to calm them down. So they took some Tylenol from the same bottle and as the one that her dad had taken. So the same Tylenol that Adam took. And as a result, they too died from the cyanide-laced Tylenol capsules. Now, Keja wants people to know that the past no longer haunts her anymore. I have control of it at this point. I feel like I'm at peace and I am. I own it. I just want to move on with my life and focus on the future, on the now. Now, Paula Prince's loved ones, they also want closure. So Jean Regula Levengood was a good friend of Paula's. And she says, I don't think of how much I've missed with her. I think of how much she has missed. And that is so incredibly sad. You know, even through all of the grief and the tragedy, you know, there was a silver lining that came out of everything. And that silver lining was the reaction of Johnson & Johnson to find any other tainted bottles and to prevent it from happening again. And yes, nothing can bring back the seven people whose lives were taken in 1982, but the deaths of those seven people really sparked a change in the way that society viewed the dangers of tampering in food and in medication. And because of that, 
a practical means of prevention was established. So in addition to the record-breaking recall, Johnson & Johnson established working relations with the Chicago Police Department, the FBI, and the Food and Drug Administration. Johnson & Johnson also put into place tamper-resistant caps and packaging. That way, it's clear if a bottle or a package has been compromised. And that was the same with the packaging of food. They took the same, you know, model and did it that way. Now, even though Johnson & Johnson responded immediately and the response that they received from the public was incredibly positive, its market share dropped from 35% to 8%. But that didn't last long. The company rebounded in less than a year, and they reintroduced capsules in a new triple-sealed package coupled with very low price promotions. Within several years, Tylenol regained the highest market share for the -the over-the-counter analgesic in the United States. Now, after the recall, Johnson & Johnson's subsidiary, McNeil Laboratories, submitted a claim to its insurance company, Affiliated FM Insurance, for the cost of carrying out the recall. But Affiliated FM denied their claim. Now, a lawsuit further determined that McNeil Laboratories were ultimately not covered because the parent company, Johnson & Johnson, had elected not to buy more expensive recall insurance. Yeah, I bet you're rethinking that one right now. So McNeil Labs tried to sue again, stating that their insurance should cover the recall. But again, it was rejected by the court. And obviously, family members sued over the deaths of their loved ones. In 1991, Johnson & Johnson agreed to settle all of the lawsuits that were filed against them by the original seven Chicago deaths for an undisclosed amount. Now, the changes that were inspired by the 1982 Tylenol incidents changed more than just the way Tylenol is packaged. It also changed the laws, making product tampering a federal crime. In addition to the changes made by Johnson & Johnson, you know, the FDA also stepped in, right? And the FBI and the FDA introduced more stringent regulations to avoid products tampering. Now, this led to the eventual replacement of the capsule with a solid caplet, a tablet that was made in the shape of a capsule as a drug delivery form. And it added the tamper, you know, resistant safety seals to bottles of many sorts. And, you know, it's one of those where, you know, it's pretty evident, right, if it's been tampered with. So, you know, they made that so it was very easy to see if there was a potential issue with your package. Now, unfortunately, Halloween took a hit that October 1982. The Tylenol scare kind of rolled over into candy sales. People just didn't know what they could trust at that point. 
because nothing like that had ever happened before. So people were panicked. They were they were nervous. So candy sales that year in American grocery stores were down more than 20%. But the next year, Halloween was back to normal and candy sales through the roof. So that is the case of the 1982 Tylenol murders. The seven people who died just so senselessly will always be remembered and their deaths, while absolutely awful, have helped to save and protect anyone else from dying due to tampering. So the deaths also helped pass laws that tampering with food or medication become a federal offense. So thank you for joining me today for episode two of History's Mysteries. The history episodes are posted on the first of every month. Every Monday is a Mystery Monday episode where I focus on an unsolved or missing person case. Every other Saturday is a Solved Saturday case where I focus on a case that has been solved by law enforcement. I'll cover the details of the case, the investigation, all the way through the trial and the verdict or a plea agreement if that's the way that it went. So that is all for today. Again, please share, comment, leave me a rating, all the stuff that goes with the podcast. I'm just starting out and I would super appreciate it. So give me a follow so you never miss an episode. Have a great day and I will talk with you again very soon.